0: I'm your host, John Sayers, and I am the Angry Tenor. I have been doing the podcast now for a little while, and I think I'm starting to get the hang of it. At least I hope so. I just wanted to remind you that new episodes go live every Monday evening at 7 p.m. That's every Monday evening at 7 p.m. New episodes of the Angry Tenor. And now, let's see what's making me angry today. In this current season of politics, it occurred to me to look at what effect politics has on the arts in general, and on opera specifically. So let's take a look at how the early censors and politics of the time affected the operas of Verdi and Mozart, and then I would like to take a look at our own NEA in this country of USA and see how politics has affected it. Now, the NEA was an independent agency founded in 1965, but it still is dependent upon the government for funding. And so I want to take a look as to how that funding was affected, who affected it, and why. And that is what makes me angry.
1: La costecra mi l'uvil per me a belle...
0: Tumbalo in Mascara, a masked ball, is an 1859 opera by Giuseppe Verdi. The text by Antonio Soma was based on Eugène Scrive's libretto for the opera Gustav III by Aubert. The plot concerns the assassination in 1792 of King Gustav III of Sweden, who was shot as a result of a political conspiracy while attending a masked ball. It was to take over two years between the planned production in naples and its premier performance at the teatro apollo in rome in 1859 in becoming the Umballo and mascara which we know today verdi's opera and his libretto underwent a significant series of transformations and title changes caused by a combination of censorship regulations in both naples and rome as well as the political situation in France in 1858. Based on the Scribi libretto, and begun as Gustavo III, set in Stockholm, it became Una vendetta in Domino, set in Stettin, Poland. And finally, Un ballo in Mascara, set in Boston during the colonial era. It became one of the most frustrating experiences of Verdi's career, the frustration remaining to this day as opera producers are turning more and more to the original setting at least in terms of the character names. Scribe invented the romance between the king and the fictional Amelia, whose name remains the same and who is the wife of the the count, the king's best friend, and adds characters and situations such as Oscar the page boy. Soma's new libretto known as Gustavo III was presented to the censors in Naples by late 1857. By November, Verdi informed some of revisions demanded by the censors, the most significant of which was the refusal to allow the depiction of a monarch on the stage, and especially the monarch's murder. Changes in characters, names, and titles were proposed. The king of Sweden became the Duke of Pomerania. Ankerström, Count Ankerström, became Count Renato, and the location was moved from Stockholm to Stettin, Poland. At first, uh, censors demanded further changes, removing the action from Europe. The location became Boston during the British colonial period, and the leading character became Ricardo, the Count or Earl of Warwick. At this point, the opera became Un ballo in Mascara, set in North America. From the mid-20th century, it has become more common for the setting to revert to its original 18th century Stockholm location. I did a production in Germany that used the Italian version and another production that used the Swedish version. Both were entitled Un Balo and Mascara, and little else was changed besides the names of the characters. But the assassination of a king must have riled the politics of the day to have caused such a disruption in the making of a work of performance art. How petty governments can be. Some would say sensitive, but I see this as petty intervention of a narcissistic mindset, much like exists today in the government of the USA. And that makes me angry. Thinking about censorship, Fahrenheit 451 probably jumps to mind. But what about *Le Nozze di Figaro*, the Marriage of Figaro? When Mozart composed his operatic comedy in 1786, the play by Pierre Beaumarchais, a Freemason, from which the libretto is drawn, had already been flagged by censors for its calls for social equality. Figaro now one of the most frequently performed operas, foreshadowed the French Revolution. The story details the exploits of betrothed servants Figaro and Susanna as they outwit their married aristocratic employer who is trying to bed Susanna. It's creepy. The low-born Figaro is the hero, and the Count Almaviva is the boor. It took six years of revisions to make the original play palatable to government censors in the 18th century, and Mozart faced his own difficulties in getting a libretto approved. However, its popularity was so great that people were reportedly trampled to death during the premiere. The biggest problem Mozart had was his last opera, Die Zauberflöte, or the Magic Flute, or sometimes referred to as the Masonic Opera. Mozart was a Freemason, and Zauberflöte is full of Masonic rites. Many of the trials Tamino must go through, air, earth, water, fire, closely follow Masonic initiation ritual. The flute itself is magical and represents the harmony of Masonry. But the libretto is packed full of symbols and references to the actual rituals of Freemasonry, which is still shrouded in secrecy till today. The number three, for instance, has an important significance for the Masons and occurs repeatedly throughout the opera. There are consistent references made to the number three, whether it has to do with temples, ladies, boys, or even a serpent cut into three pieces. And to the Viennese of that day, political symbolism was easily and broadly interpreted. They saw the opera's Queen of the Night as no one other than their own Empress Maria Theresa. The hero Tamino was seen to be the good Emperor Joseph, and the heroine Pamina was the Austrian people itself. This political symbolism, real or imagined, helped contribute to the eventual banning of masonry in Austria. In June of 1795, an order came down to close all Masonic lodges in the empire. Freemasonry ceased to exist in Austria for more than a century. But the magic flute, not only possibly Mozart's greatest piece of music, has also remained synonymous with Masonic symbolism to this very day. And that makes me angry. The National Endowment for the Arts, the NEA, is an independent agency of the federal government that offers support and funding for projects exhibiting artistic excellence. It was created by an act of Congress in 1965 as an independent agency and consists of the Federal Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Federal Council on the Arts and the Humanities, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services. President Lyndon Johnson promoted the arts in terms of the great society. He sought social betterment, not artistic creativity. He typically emphasized qualitative and quantitative goals, especially the power of the arts to improve the quality of life of ordinary Americans and to reduce the inequalities between the haves and the have-nots. But the way forward was cloudy. Upon entering office in 1981, Ronald Reagan intended to push Congress to abolish the NEA completely over a three-year period. Reagan thought this was a good department to bring to a halt because they went too far and they would be easy to defeat. However, these plans were abandoned when the President's Special Task Force on the Arts and Humanities discovered the needs involved and the benefits of past assistance and they concluded that continued federal support Was important. The 1994 midterm elections cleared the way for House Speaker Newt Gingrich to lead a renewed attack on the NEA. Gingrich had called for the NEA to be eliminated completely, along with the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. However, despite massive budget cutbacks and the end of grants to individual artists, Gingrich ultimately failed in his push to eliminate the endowment. But he did damage. In 1996, Congress cut the NEA funding to $99 million as a result of pressure from conservative groups including the American Family Association, who criticized the agency for using tax dollars to fund highly controversial artists such as Andre Serrano, Robert Mapplethorpe, and the performance artists known as the NEA4. 2014, the Met faced backlash for programming John Adams' The Death of Klinghoffer*, a dramatization of a Palestinian terrorist attack on a cruise ship in 1985. Critics of the opera say that Adams' work presented the terrorists as sympathetic. The opera's supporters insist that humanizing the Palestinians' motives doesn't condone them. After fractious discussions, the Met's leadership compromised. The live shows went on as scheduled, but the simulcast and radio broadcasts were canceled. Protesters picketed during Klinghoffer's run at the Met, but the controversy ensured that the show sold out repeatedly. Grants from NEA often impacted low-budget groups negatively. When I was living in New York, I was cast to sing the American premiere of an opera by an Australian composer. The small opera group, which had budgeted $50,000 for this production, applied for a grant from the NEA. They were informed the minimum grant was $100,000, and that was only a matching grant. The opera company could not do this, even on an annual basis, So it turned to private fundraising to raise the money to produce this opera.
1: I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, here ten years dead, I never
0: but not only in opera. In February 1952, the United States Customs Service seized the passport of Paul Robeson, preventing him from leaving the United States to travel to the Fourth Canadian Convention of the International Union of Mine, Mill, and Smelter Workers in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. But after the convention heard Robeson sing over the telephone, the Union organized a concert on the U.S.-Canada border. According to the account of the Paul Robeson Centennial celebration, Robeson sang and spoke for 45 minutes. He introduced his first song, stating, I stand here today under great stress, because I dare as do you, all of you, to fight for peace and for a decent life for all men, women, and children. He then proceeded to sing spirituals, folk songs, labor songs, and a passionate version of Old Man River, slowly enunciating, show a little grit and you land in jail. Underlining the fact that his government had turned the entire country into a prison for Robeson and many others. In the 1960s, the songs of Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, and others protested further racism, war, and the military-industrial complex, continuing an American artistic tradition of political protest founded during its colonial era. I
1: dreamed I saw joy last night, alive as you and me. I, but Joe, you're ten years dead, I never died, says he.
0: Much later, after I had retired from singing and the newspaper, I was part of the Reading for the Blind program at my local NPR station. This was in 2010. I was with the program for seven years. Long about the fifth year in the program, Congress and the NEA eliminated all funds for this program, and many stations were forced to eliminate the program for lack of funding. The funding was needed to purchase the radios that were given to a blind person so that they could receive the broadcast, which was on a private frequency. The station where I was reading managed to raise money locally to keep the program going, and when I left the program, it was still going. The budget outline submitted by President Trump on March 16, 2017 to Congress would eliminate all funding for the program. Congress approved a budget that retained NEA funding. The White House budget proposed for fiscal year 2018 again, calling for the elimination of funding for the NEA. But Congress retained the funding for another year. The budget for 2020 is $162 million. And all of this makes me very angry. And this has been the show for today. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I wanted to give you... If you have comments to make, I hope you do, um, to send them to me, send them to my email, and uh, let me know if you want them put on the uh, on the podcast, and I will put them on. If you don't, please say that also, and I won't. But the uh, the email address is Tenore at att.net. So, I'm John Sayers, and I am the Angry Zisap und cups <laughs> in